Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Clash of the Titles, the podcast that sees two movies with something in common go head-to-head to see which one does it better on this week's episodes. In the red corner, we're checking in to the Overlook Hotel, where little Danny Torrance is going to learn from Mr. Halloran how to use his shining to escape ghosts, ghouls, and a very bad dad who has an interesting way of dealing with writer's block. From 1980, we're talking The Shining. I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970? Well, a man named Charles Grady is the winter caretaker. And he came up here with his wife and two little girls, I think about eight and ten. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. While in the blue corner, it's like father, like son. And as grown-up Danny struggles with alcoholism, Mr. Halloran shows up. No, not to say, hey, could have done with that shining-based warning about your dad having a frickin' axe that day, but instead to set Danny on a new path in 2019's Doctor Sleep. When I was a kid, there was a place dark place. They closed it down and let it rot. But the things that lived there... They come back. So what connects these two films and which one does it better? Let's find out. It's Clash of the Titles. Release the Kraken! Clash potters. Of course, I intend to change my jacket this evening before the fish and goose soiree. I'm Alex Zane. I'm Vicky Crompton. Chris Tilly. How are you both? Very well, thank you. Good. Yeah? Yeah. Are you excited? Yeah. This is the Halloween countdown. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Is it a countdown? It is a countdown. Okay. 
That's how we do it. We do a like a chart. Well, listen, I wrote something for this, so it's I'll just I'll just read it rather it. than just uh, riffing on the theme. Uh, so these were my choices: The Shining versus Doctor Sleep. Why? Because we are at the start of our world famous. Halloween countdown month here on Clash Pod. And this year, to get us ready for the greatest night of the year, we're celebrating the master of horror, as every week we're going to be pitting a Stephen King adaptation against a Stephen King adaptation. It's a month of King versus King. And what better way to celebrate Stephen King than to kick off with a movie the author famously hates? <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, pitted against a film he loves that continues the story of the Torrance family, Mike Flanagan's Doctor Sleep. How's that for a reason? It's yeah. good. It's good. I mean, there is another reason why I picked these King movies to start. It's because... I didn't want to have to do the research on The Shining because, man, is there a lot, Chris. And you also now, yeah, I'm exhausted and I feel sick with nerves about having to talk about this film. But you also owe me £5.99 as well. Why is that? Because initially you wanted The Shining versus 1408 and I bought that on DVD. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, so I want, I want the dosh. <laughs> fine, fine. That's probably the price of a beer round here, so I'll buy you a beer. But I think this is a more interesting pairing, so good job, Alex. <laughs> yeah, it well is Well done for flip-flopping. Pairing. And also, I did find it quite amusing when I put the message on the WhatsApp group going, hey, so who wants what? Never has Victoria answered faster. Chris should do The Shining! <laughs> yeah, I did feel weird about that as well, because I'm Why? pretty sure I asked who's read The Shining, and I'm the only one who hasn't. So? So it makes no sense for me to be presenting a film I've not read. She just didn't want to do the work. No, I agree. No, I didn't. She didn't want to do the work. There's a lot on The Shining, isn't there? Did there you do is. any research into it? I, d I watched Room 237. And oh. I've read The Shining, so... Was it your first watch of that? Yeah, it was. Good, isn't it? It's really good. Yeah, really? because we told her to watch it last week. Right, I know. Asked me to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, then. So the clue I gave last week was, I'd like the royal suite, please. Love that clue. Chris, follow that up on Twitter with... The Sins of the Father. So we're on Twitter at ClashPod. Also, Instagram at ClashPod. And the guessers wandered around the digital hedge maze until we found them. Andrew Logan, Gemma Page, Danny Baker all went for The Shining versus 1408. It was a good guess. And we did think about doing that. Um, we felt it was kind of wrong to do it, though. I, I feel Doctor Sleep is the better one. We start and end this week with the Overlook Hotel. So I'm happy with what we did. And also, I rewatched 1408. I didn't buy it on DVD. It ain't as good as I remember. Which means James Ossipew, Paul Logue and Reese Page all got the correct answer. But the winner this week with the first correct guess, sometimes they come back. It's a Gary. <laughs> Gary Bailey is this week's champion. Cujo to you, Gary. Carry on your good work. You did it. <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, in your prize this week, Gary, was that wonderful wordplay I just did. I hope you enjoyed it. So the connection section. Are we skipping it? Because Has anyone got anything that isn't screamingly obvious? I have no, one. I really struggled. I didn't bother. Okay. The only one I've got is... The actor Danny Lloyd, who plays mm, yeah. Danny Torrance, obviously, in The Shining, young Danny Torrance. He has a cameo at the baseball game in Doctor Sleep. Aside from that, I think they're all just ridiculously easy. Yeah, the sequel. Okay. So what should we talk about in the connection section? I was going to suggest we talk about how we first came into contact with Stephen King. Was it a book? Was it a film? What was it, Vicky? So when I was very little, I was scared to death of it, but I, and I couldn't watch it. Um, so then, but my interest was piqued. So I tried to read Carrie and I couldn't, I just, I was too young. I think I was like nine or 10. So then I read Needful Things, which I don't know if anyone else has read it. Wow. That's 
you couldn't read Carrie. Mm. Why? Because it was what too scary or too hard? Because Needful Things is a dense book. I didn't get Carrie to be honest because I was too young to uh, sort of get what that girl was going through. Mm. Um, and then Needful Things. The reason I picked it up is because it had a dream catcher on the front, and I thought that looked cool because that's nine year old me. <laughs> I had a dream catcher. And so you read um, it? Yeah, I read the whole thing, and and also that my parents weren't massive Stephen King fans, so they let me read it. I don't think they knew what was in it. Um, so after that, then I went back and I did quite a few of them. That's it. All right, Alex. Uh, I had a very soft introduction to Stephen King as far as his films go. It was back to back, Stand by Me and Shawshank Redemption. Mm. So no horror. Just two brilliant movies. That was my introduction to his films. His literature, the short story collection Night Shift, mm. it, which honestly, every story in that book is absolutely fantastic. And I remember reading it. It was my friend Stephen Houston's copy. I was sitting on his bed in his bedroom reading it. And the story in it, The Bogeyman, uh, it was just... The Bogeyman? The Boogeyman. Okay. <laughs> That's very no, different. I, I flip-flop no. on that pronunciation. <laughs> I do. Fungus, do yeah, fungus, I do. fungus the Bogeyman. Yeah, it was That's Fungus a... the Bogeyman, yeah. and it has this big green monster in it, and it's just terrifying. I can't believe Stephen King wrote it. Uh, no, Boogeyman. Um, it's just this really scary story. Um, Stephen Houston's parents were very environmentally conscious, so the lights weren't on in the house to go and use the toilet, and I was too scared to leave the bedroom to go to the toilet so I had to wait until I went home to use the toilet. <laughs> and that was how scared reading Stephen King makes me. And it still kind of does. Not so much now, but, you know, all through my childhood. My dad had a hard copy of, a hardback copy of It. Mm. And I remember the cover was the clown's face on the front of an old house with the teeth, like, making yeah. the doorway. And I it just, I remember seeing it. And I can only have been, like, maybe seven or eight and just being like, this is... What is this? Why is that? That shouldn't be allowed near me. <laughs> I'm I'm now wondering, is it Bogeyman? It's, I think it just depends where you're from. Does it? It's regional. I think, no, I think, I think Americans say boogie. We say bogey. Okay. I'm weirded out now. Mine was Stand By Me, like you, Alex. I think a lot of people of my generation, it was Stand By Me because yeah. it was a film for kids. Yes. And it was a really good kids film. Yeah. So yeah, that led me to to different seasons, the book of short stories from well, or stories which that came from. Mm. So I read Apt Pupil and Shawshank Redemption before they were turned into movies. Uh, but the first novel I read, weirdly, was The Dark Half. Oh yeah, and I think it was the new Stephen King at the time, and I think I got my mum to get it from Reader's Digest. <laughs> I think that's how I got a hardback copy of it. Isn't that? I remember trying to read that, and isn't there a really, really horrible scene where they tie a guy to a chair naked or something, and they mutilate him in some horrible graphic way? Yeah, I think. So. I mean, there's a hot. There, I remember being horrified by it, mm. but also realizing, oh, I can take this. I can do horror. That's so, and so interesting. It led me into led me into horror. So you could do horror literature, but not horror film. It took me a few, a couple more years probably to get into mm. the the movies. There you go. Anyway, so fair to say, all Stephen King fans read a few of the books that we're talking about this month not all of them but we'll get to that yeah i'm reading billy summers at the moment his recent one about the hitman not horror but uh, it's a thriller with a hitman in. it's pretty good pretty good i'm reading dance macabre because it's um a non-fiction book that he's written about horror movies that he loves he wrote it in 81 mm. so it's not got more recent stuff but it's just i thought there might be some useful stuff and it's really interesting mm. it's in 81 so it's a year after the shining came out he's quite a big fan of the shining in this book yeah, it's weird, isn't <laughs> he it? Fl he he flip-flops yeah, as well. Yeah, he does flip-flop. <laughs> yeah. Oh, another good one. Just last one. Recent one, Revival. That's a really good one with the priest who can heal people. Okay.
Very good. All right, enough of that. So, on Thursday, Vicky is going to be picking a fight with Ewan, who's army, which means today Chris has had to research one of the most historically dense movies we've ever covered. Let's all hope all work and no play hasn't made him a dull boy. Chris takes on a journey. The Shining is the story of Jack Torrance, an aspiring author who becomes off-season caretaker at the Overlook Hotel, ostensibly so he can get some peace and quiet to write. But his nagging wife tags along, as does weird son Danny and his adorable mate Tony. And every time Jack tries to write, his family gets in the way. The Overlook's spooky inhabitants try to aid his artistic endeavour by getting Wendy and Danny out of the picture but they won't go quietly, and it soon starts to seem like they would rather see Jack die than realise his dreams. And that's just how The Shining ends, with Jack dead and the world deprived of his masterpiece. The end. No, you said it like It's such a sad story. It's, great. it's sad, isn't it? It's a it's tragic, really tragic tale. Yeah. Getting in his way. Poor bloke. <laughs> He's just trying to write. So infuriating when people interrupt you. <laughs> so when did you first see The Shining, Alex? Um... I can't exactly remember when I first saw it. I first heard about it from Mrs. Banks, my English teacher at school, because she was talking about it at the start of a lesson. She was very cool, Mrs. Banks. She was like, I, I rented a VHS last night and it was The Shining and we were watching it and the dad is chasing the son with an axe around this maze in the snow and the tape broke and I still don't know if he kills him or not and I'm terrified and I've got to go back to the video shop tonight. And you know when I hear about movies that I haven't seen told to me, I just get really excited about what the actual film is going to be like. So I watched it shortly after that. And I remember loving it, but I remember being really confused. I remember being scared, mm. but I remember being more confused. I watched it with friends and the end and that photograph, we must have talked for the longest I think we've ever talked about the end of a film going, but what does it mean? Mm. What, what, what does that mean? And I've watched it about five or six times since then. And it's not as scary as it was that first time. But, and I think I told you this the other week, I, I nearly forgot to make notes while I was watching it because it's a hypnotic experience for me mm. watching this movie. I get so immersed in it. Mm. Vicky? So I read it, and then, but I didn't watch it for a while. Um, and then I think it was a Mark VHS. So mm -hmm. I would have been like... It will have been. Yeah, like 19. He had over 2,000 VHS, didn't he? <laughs> I'm thinking from every week it's a Mark VHS. How we big was this do, room? We didn't do much else. No, <laughs> so big shelf though. It was, it, well, yeah. And you know, now you said, I can't picture the shelf. Was the shelf even real? Was it even there? So I was disappointed the first time I saw it because I remembered the book version quite closely and I didn't find the, the film scary. I appreciated it for what it is, but I didn't find it as scary as the book. Wait, so how old were you when you saw it? The film, mm. but 19. Okay. And I was quite young when I read the book. So. The book, I think the book is scarier than the film. Yes, me too. Um, but I've seen it about three or four times since. And now now I'm much more on board with Kubrick's version because I can watch it without mourning the loss of the book and mm. the version and, and particularly the father-son relationship and the, the all the layers of like the, you know, Jack being jealous of Danny because the hotel wants Danny, doesn't really want him. And, and you don't really get that from the film, but it's fine. They, the two things exist perfectly by themselves for me. Agreed. Um, well, I recorded it when I was about 12 off the telly and took me a couple of years to start up the courage to actually play the tape. Um, and I had the same issue that I've got with a lot of films that I didn't particularly love the first time, but grew to love over repeat viewings. And I think those films have this in common where I was trying to follow the plot and understand the logic of the film. 
and that's not the point yep. of of this version and it'll drive you to distraction trying to make sense of it so once you know that that there aren't any answers then you watch it and you stop concentrating on the story and you can just get immersed in the in the visuals and the atmosphere and the sound and the tone and 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 the mood and so it's just this stunning sensory experience and i've i've big lebowski is another film like that where once you've stopped thinking about the plot it's a much more enjoyable experience and so yeah i love it now I, i've probably seen it five or six times um i watched it twice this week and yeah i i think i love it more each time and there's not many films i can say that about yeah so, shall we talk about a bit of background? <laughs> a little bit. A <laughs> little bit of background. Let's start with the book. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you a story. In 1974, Stephen King and his wife Tabitha checked into the Stanley Hotel in Colorado. It was about to close down for the season and they were the only two guests in the hotel that night. They had dinner in the grand dining room on their own, while orchestral music was piped in and echoed all through the empty corridors. Tabitha turned in after dinner while King went to the bar where he was served drinks by a bartender called Grady. <laughs> by the time he went to bed, King had the idea for a story. The plot would combine that experience with his own alcoholism and the feelings of anger and antagonism he sometimes felt towards his three children. <laughs> <laughs> the Shining was published in 1977. And do you know where the title came from? No. No. This was a mad discovery. Um, it was inspired by the line, we all shine on from John Lennon's Instant Karma. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's where it comes from. That's good. A bit of trivia for you. Uh, Stanley Hotel. I'm so jealous. That's where he filmed, because he was really upset when Kubrick went, I'm not using the Stanley Hotel. And so mm. when he exec produced and wrote the TV mm. series, The Shining. The, be- the beloved TV movie. <laughs> <laughs> the right movie. Um, he filmed there at the Stanley Hotel. He actually went back there to do it. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. No, he, I mean, we'll, we'll get onto that, but, but enter Stanley Kubrick. Um, he wanted a hit after Barry Lyndon and was seeing how big horror uh, was becoming at the box office. He thought he might go in that direction, uh, particularly as he turned down The Exorcist mm. um, because they wouldn't let him be a producer on that. So that was a smash. So he read lots of gothic horror stories. Uh, there was one he particularly liked called The Blue Hotel uh, by Stephen Craven, which uh, interested him in the idea of someone arriving somewhere with a death wish. Uh, uh, and also Carrie, based on a book by Stephen King, had also been a hit. So that set off something in his head um, when he read The Shining. He turned to the master of horror. He saw potential for telling his own planned story in an adaptation of The Shining. So he bought the rights, knowing full well he'd change lots of the story. Uh, as Alex said, first King wrote a draft. Um, Kubrick didn't like it, but deeming it too literal, a translation. Um, so he adapted it with author Diane Johnson. Have either of you seen that TV movie? No. Mm-mm. No. All right. I watched the trailer. That was enough. Good. Uh, Did it look good? <laughs> Fine. I'm actually quite interested in seeing it. I don't know why I've never got around to seeing it, seeing as I spend a lot of time watching stuff. I'd, I'd quite like to see it. Well, King King wanted um, Martin Sheen or John Voight to play mm. Jack Torrance because he wanted it to be an everyman. And that's what he ended up doing. Stephen Webber, I think, is your classic movie everyman, isn't he? Mm. Yeah. And like, I mean, I'm sure you're going to get into this, but I mean, you do understand where Stephen King has come from, all this animosity towards the film, because the book was a very personal book for him. Like you said, it was struggling with his own alcoholism and 
he wanted the character. The character in the book is a guy who is a guy who's normal. He's an everyman. He's a nice guy who has this affliction, who is trying desperately to get through it. And to see like that version of him, King, then recreated as Jack Nicholson in the movie, <laughs> you are going to go, the fuck? Well, That's not me. That's not what I was writing. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of those changes. Um, I was reading that... The- Kubrick was a chess hustler. That was his favourite hobby. And he liked playing a ga- you know, he liked playing games with the person he was playing against. And that's what he liked doing with some of his films. He liked stuff that was open-ended and unexplained with no answers and lots of ambiguity. And so that's what he he wanted to make it all less literal. And so him and Diane Johnson, they removed the backstory of the ghosts, they removed Jack's backstory, they removed his humanity, his arc, his redemption. <laughs> so as you say, that plays very differently. Um so understandably, King was pissed off. And she really didn't like the book at all. There was a quote from her. I, I, I didn't look it up. Uh, I didn't bring it with me, rather. But she was really like, she's like, it's a bad book. <laughs> uh, and the other big thing they took out was these topiary monsters. Mm-hmm. Um, I know! But do, I, I, as I say, I've not read the book, but it seems more elegant to have this maze, to replace them with a maze that, where you get lost, it feels thematically much more yeah. satisfying in and that version. Accurate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I don't know whether you agree. I know you haven't read it, Chris, but the Topri monsters are the scariest thing in the book. I'd genuinely forgotten about them. Oh, really? Yeah, until I read that they'd been taken out. The thing I remember most from the book, because of the age I was when I read it, is the thing in the playground. No, <laughs> your dad is trying to kill you. So that when you're twelve. Your caregiver can turn on you, and the tr- not the trouble. Obviously, the difference with the film is that it's never in question that he's going to kill his kid. Like the minute he walks into the job interview, like this is not a normal in quote marks person. Whereas in the book, you get that gradual slide. I want to talk about that. We'll wait until yeah, we actually start talk going about through that. the we movie. About the film. But that's really it's it's really interesting, and I, I think I think there's something about Jack Nicholson's performance at the start that is often overlooked in what he's trying to do. But we'll get to it. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm going to get to it. I know you are. So um, in terms of Jack, Kubrick wanted him, um, he actually wanted Jack Nicholson to be his Napoleon. I read his Napoleon script not long ago. It's mm. good. It's good. I think Ridley Scott might be trying to make it. Oh, really? But um, yeah, so when he didn't get him to be his Napoleon, he decided he should be his Jack Torrance and that changed the writing process. So um, Diane Johnson watched a bunch of Jack Nicholson films and decided to make the character more manic in line with his face (laughs) Um, and then uh, the other big piece of casting is obviously Shelley Duvall Um, I've got a lot of notes here I don't know how much we'll get into but in the book Wendy is strong and independent and uh, sort of a professional and emotionally tough and to Kubrick he didn't think that was consistent with a woman that would endure the personality of Jack Torrance and so um, he changed her. Diane Johnson didn't. She said that Shelley Duvall's version of this character had a much bigger part in her original script. She said that as a woman, she sympathised with her and gave her ways to try and figure out what to do and how to succeed. And Kubrick took all that out. Uh, he felt that she was more in love with her partner than maybe he was with her and might tolerate the intolerable for longer than the average person. And so that's why he gave her this personality. Uh, in an interview with the BBC, King criticised Duval's performance, stating the character is basically just there to scream and be stupid, and that's not uh, the woman that I wrote about. Mm. Uh, but that's what Kubrick wanted, um, and that wasn't fun for Shelley Duval. I bet. I mean, the re- reviews of her performance at the time were really horrible. And I, I feel bad, because the first time I saw it at 19, I was like, oh my God. But then you do come to appreciate more 
what she does do for the story mm-hmm. and for her son as you watch it a bit more grown up. But totally, first time I saw it, I was like, I, I hate everything about that woman, which is awful. These are some quotes, whiny, dense, insultingly one-dimensional, a screaming dish rag was whoa, what one review whoa. said. Yeah, this is all from the time. Uh, and another one, it's not often that we urge, nay, beg the killer in a horror movie to gut one of the main characters, but we make an exception for The Shining. Excuse me? Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. These were reviews of her He doesn't even threaten to gutter, so that's someone's fantasy playing out. That's (laughs) disgusting. But we need to give it some context. I mean, A, I don't think Shelley Duvall should be blamed. This is what Stanley Kubrick wanted. Um, But that leads us into the shoot. So they they filmed at Elstree Studios in the UK. It took more than a year to make this movie, which is crazy. Um, But it was interesting reading Kubrick's thinking for these, you know, long shoots and multiple takes. He said, he said he couldn't understand why you'd spend years prepping a film, then rush through the shoot. Um, so he thought a year was absolutely fine hmm. for this kind of uh, project. Um, but from May to October of that year, Shelley Duvall was not well. The, the stress of the role, the stress of the shoot made her very sick. Have you? Did you watch Vivian Kubrick's behind the scenes um, yes. documentary? Which is amazing. It's hmm. amazing um, seeing the way this movie was made. And surprising, I thought, because... Um, you think that someone like Stanley Kubrick has everything so perfectly pre-planned. And when you realise how much is improvised and how much is made up on the spot, it was remarkable. Well, it's Jack Nicholson's famous for saying he stopped reading the scripts he was given because he knew they changed by the time he got to set. So he just learnt his lines moments before they shot a scene. Yeah. But you can you can also, in that documentary, see in Kubrick being pretty horrible mm. to Shelley uh, Duvall. He, he, he tells her she looks phony in one scene. He's arguing with her. There's a moment where there's some miscommunication and they're shooting and she's not there. And he, he shouts at her on camera, we're fucking killing ourselves out here and you aren't ready. Um, but, you know, there's an argument that it's, it was a game to him. This was all part of the game of, of building up the anger mm. and frustration inside of her. I saw an interview at the time with her saying she resented Stanley because he pushed her and it hurt. But her also saying it was necessary turmoil. Uh, they had the same end in mind, but different in their means. And by the end, their means met. She says, at the time, I respect and like him as a person. And as a director, I learned more on that set than in my entire career. Mm. So she was standing up for him then. And she, she's also stand up for him more recently. Yeah. She's obviously had her troubles. Um, she's kind of disappeared. And uh, the Hollywood reporter tracked her down in Texas last year. Um, to, and they went and, and spent a few hours talking with her. And she describes it as uh, sort of the pain of making this film. She said, before a scene, I'd put on a Walkman and listen to sad songs or just think about something sad in my life, about missing my family or friends uh, and cry. But after a while, your body rebels. It says, stop doing this to me. I don't want to cry every day. And sometimes it's just that alone would make me cry. To wake up on a Monday morning so early and realise that you have to cry all day because it was scheduled, I would just start crying. I'd be like, oh, no, I can't, I can't. And yet I did it. I don't know how I did it. Uh, Jack said to me, uh, too, that that he uh, respected it. He said, I don't know how you do this. I read the same interview. Did you not find the quote interesting where she says, uh, Kubrick doesn't print anything until at least the 35th take. So you've done 35 takes before he even commits anything. Mm. And she says, 35 takes running and crying and carrying a little boy, it gets hard. And full performance from the first rehearsal, that's different. So you go full from the rehearsal and then 35 takes later before you're even having anything recorded. It strikes me it's this nervous exhaustion is what he's after, mm-hmm. is, yeah. that, is that you start off at, at 11 and then you take it up to 12 and then you're 
down to five and then you pull it up again to 10 and you eventually get to 15 and that's where he wants you in this strange place where you're delirious almost. Yeah. Which apparently she was, that scene in the, with the baseball bat when Jack's pushing her up the stairs. I think that is in the Guinness Book of Records as the scene that has taken the most number of takes that features dialogue, 127 takes oh my God. for that scene. And I can't remember who said it. Someone said that she wasn't playing terrified there. She was just terrified. She was basically breaking down. Mm. But in that same interview, the recent one, she says he was very warm and friendly to me. She hasn't really got a bad word to say against him. The only person that does say things against him is Angelica Houston, yeah, <laughs> who was who was living with Nicholson at the time. And she said, when I saw her during those days, she seemed generally a bit tortured, shook up. Um, I don't think anyone was being particularly careful of her. So that's some real life horror. And there's lots more today but to say, but let's get into the film to yeah. talk about that stuff. <laughs> right. It kicks off with the movie from Sleeping with the Enemy. <laughs> the sexy music. <laughs> Does it? Yeah, it's, that's the same music that uh, Patrick puts on in Sleeping with the Enemy, isn't it? Symphony Fantastique. Oh, is it? Yeah. I can't believe I didn't clock that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And footage from Blade Runner. Yeah, they they borrowed for The Shining. (laughs) But you've got this beautiful, graceful opening shot, a a helicopter swooping over, that disturbing music. It it does grab your attention. Yeah. Mm. Um, But I've read these readings of it as, oh, it's so ominous there. It doesn't feel ominous to me. It does to me. The music makes it ominous, but the the footage is beautiful. I think it works because of the isolation. I think that's what it serves a real purpose for because, you you know, you're sort of like they are going into the middle or it's just Jack at that point, but he's Mm. driving into the middle of nowhere i guess he's he's giving you a sense of the the peace and tranquility that he's going to smash yeah um and then mr kubrick very kindly broke the film up into sections uh, <laughs> doubtless so that i wouldn't have to so let's kick off with as it says on screen the interview uh so jack's having an interview in Ullman's office um with a window that can't exist um, I didn't get that. Why is it an impossible well, window? Yeah, let's go to you, Vicky, because you think we asked you to watch Room Two Three Seven. You watched Room Two Three Seven. Did, did you enjoy it? I did enjoy it. I thought it's a really. It's what you'd said about. Is it actually like a treatise on the internet? Like you just get told all these random theories and you're trying to ascribe weight to one and and dismiss the other, and you've got no guide as to what is batshit and what is not so there is a lot of stuff in there that I was like I don't connect with this at all the moon landing stuff nope yeah um, no that's the best the, but the bit that's coming up where someone you know because it's all voiceover and he's like now you go to the interview and look and look and it's right there admin tray erection I was like that that's not right <laughs> like, that's just a coincidence I'm pretty sure but the idea I mean the thing is that with Room 237 what was hard is like people are like Kubrick is a genius and he's done this and he's done this and he's invented this space and it's amazing and he's reflecting on the past horrors of how humanity is awful to humanity but it is an existing IP like there's certain things he didn't invent so I don't think he deserves some of the lauding he gets in that documentary about what he's created he didn't actually create the the thing but the idea that uh, the past impinges, we're doomed to repeat ourselves, we can't forget things, sorry, we always forget things. That's what makes the scene coming up later with Delbert Grady, which is obviously that one of the best scenes, so powerful because we just repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And I do think that's in here. Um, but yeah, interview scene, admin tray erection, no thank you, room 237, that's mm. nonsense. But I guess that with the geography of the hotel based on where people go, yeah. if you figured it out, that that room would lead into another, there'd be another yeah, room behind it. but then that's it. the trouble with the documentary. It's like, so what? So, like, so who cares? <laughs> I think it's because um, 
Stanley Kubrick is so meticulous. Yeah, so you're ascribing he, weight to something that could just have been him being like, wouldn't this look better with a window in it? Yeah, and, and they're saying that when you know about him, he would never do that. He would never do something unless it was on purpose. And I feel like he does do this on purpose all through this film. So what um, does the window signify? Sorry, I haven't I think, seen 237 for a long time. No, it's it's not just that. It's the stuff that it's the stuff that that stuff moves around in scene from scene to scene. Like objects move. It's like uh, what's the word the, when you're supposed to be in charge of it when you've got to have a bottle in the same place in a movie. Continuity. Continuity is off all the time in this film. And when you know he spent a year doing it, and he's so meticulous about that kind of thing, I think it's all to create this sense in your subconscious that this world doesn't make sense. Yeah, that there's something off. And so you're not really seeing it, but something in the back of your brain is seeing it and telling you this hotel isn't normal. Mm. To throw you off kilter. Yeah, no, I agree. I think Jack Nicholson is amazing in this interview scene. He is amazing. He's He doesn't seem like a writer and he doesn't seem like a family man. And that's fine in this film version of The Shining, but it's completely at odds with the book version of him. Yes, but he does really capture. So at this point in the movie, and I only found this out from one of the deleted scenes, he's been on the wagon for five months because there's a deleted <clears throat> excuse me, moment with Lloyd, the bartender, where he actually says, I've been on the wagon for five months. He also refers to his wife as a sperm bank nice. so it's quite good that they cut it because that didn't sit well when so I read that sense. it's a strange one he isn't it holds on to it like, <laughs> for you Slate but he's been on the wagon for five months and it's the way he <clears throat> he's so not at ease at all in that meeting but you you get that understanding of like he's so used to being drunk at that point that he's still not able to interact with people without booze in his body and so every thing he says and you can see him kind of straining at the seams to appear normal mm. and infused and have funny remarks to say and it all feels very unnatural to him because he's not drunk for the first time that makes sense and i think it's just it's so well done yeah and quite subtle and nuanced which doesn't seem right when you think about his performance but when you sort of look at where he is in his life with alcohol at that point it's Bang on the money. Mm. I feel like alcoholism is barely in this film, though. You see, I think it is. You're, t- you're talking about deleted scenes that you're getting stuff from, but we're well, talking about... And also, we should say we're talking about the the European cut of this film, aren't we? The two-hour version. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we are. There's a couple of... The American version is 20 minutes longer. Yeah, I know. But, I mean... Wait, hang on. So we, are we saying that there's been no mention of him being sober at that point? But it does come up later. It definitely comes up later. But he goes for a it? drink, and there's a you know there's a, there's a, there's a conversation at the bar about whether he should have a drink or not. It's yeah. just if I, I I get a sense that it's such a big part of the book, mm-hmm. and it feels like it's it's not a big part of this movie. Okay, I just watched it and I thought it was wrong for King to sort of dismiss Jack as just being bad from the start when I was watching that scene, and I don't know why I was like maybe it's from reading the book that I I knew he was you know yeah sober at that point. But watching that scene, I was like, you've, you've got to give him credit for actually nailing on what it must be like at that point to be five months sober, having been a raging alcoholic. Mm-hmm. So I thought I thought it was good. And I thought King was wrong to sort of go. He just seems evil from the start. To me, he seems like a man struggling. Mm. But yeah, you're talking about a deleted scene, though. That which, So it, it's hard to prescribe that to this film if, if you don't have that knowledge unless you watch a deleted scene. Yeah, yeah. But I've always... I'm sure I've always watched this film and known that he was recovering from alcoholism. Because you read the book. Is that it? Is it not in the film at all? At the bar, there's that back and forth is about whether he should have a drink or not. And so you get a sense that he's got this real problem. He's had this problem. He has a problem. 
That is interesting. Maybe that's why it makes more sense to me now as a film since I've read the book. And when I first watched it, I found the whole thing very confusing and yeah. why this man was just evil. Well, we get a bit of plot here. Uh, he's told the winters can be cruel, that there's a, this tremendous sense of solitude and isolation. But he said he'll be fine. He's outlining uh, a new writing project. The Five Months of Peace is just what he wants. He's warned that there was a tragedy there in 1970 that his predecessor, Charles Grady, suffered some kind of breakdown, ran amok, killed his family with an axe, stacked them neatly in a room, then shot his head off. He says, that's not going to happen with me. Um, <laughs> and we also cut to Danny briefly. Um, he sadly doesn't have any friends to play with, aside from finger friend Tony. Did you call him Charles Grady? Is it not Delbert? Or is that... They're two different people. Oh. Yeah. What? Well, no, they might not be. We'll get they to that. Be, but he's, yeah. called, he's called Charles Grady at this point oh in the film. God. This is quite important, Alex. Did I watch this movie? <laughs> yeah. yeah. But these are the things. Are these mistakes? Are these things? This, this, he's called Charles Grady. He's called Charles Grady, but Delbert Grady is Delbert Grady. So then there's the theory about, is Charles Grady a reincarnation of Delbert Grady? And does the hotel only call Grady's and Torrance's to it? We're going to get to that, Alex. Okay. That's later. <laughs> um, and uh, Tony's talking to Danny in the bathroom, telling him that his dad uh, has the job, is about to phone with news, so we know that Danny does have some kind of uh, power. Um, and Tony doesn't want to go to the hotel. Mm. Do you like the phone call, though? Again, I just think it's great. But, I mean, again, I'm looking at this through the eyes of someone who understands that Jack is recovering from alcohol. And... The bit where he's on the phone to his wife uh, and Wendy is like, oh, wow, it sounds like you got the job then, honey. And he's like, right. And then just <laughs> like, that is all he says. And you again, it really fits into this idea of a man who has just expended so much effort having to talk to strangers who he wants to give him a job that when he's brought back to an in inverted commas, just his wife, mm. who he's talking to, he's not going to make that effort anymore because he's used it up. And he's like, what he is really is a man who's a little bit dead inside. Yeah. Let's check out the Overlook momentarily for a quick break. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we're back inside the Overlook where it's closing day. Uh, we got the drive to the hotel and family. <laughs> the family do seem quite mad here. I was I thought you yeah. were going to say normal. <laughs> they, they really don't. It feels like a satire of a sitcom to me. They've got these fixed smiles and they're yeah. having these strange conversations about cannibalism. And, and this, is, this is the bit where I was like, I remember watching this and going, oh, he's mad. He's awful. He's just yeah. a mad man. <laughs> what was the other movie you talked about the Donner Party in? Bone yeah. Tomahawk. Ravenous. 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 Yeah, Ravenous yeah. is based on the uh, the Donner Party. Yeah. It's the glee with which he's telling Danny about it. It's like that's the first time he goes, oh, let me tell you about this. Yeah. And they eat each other. Yeah. And, and you see the difference in parenting techniques. Because yeah, Wendy's like, and he's like, <laughs> yeah. he's seen it on TV. But it's so, there's so much in Danny and it'll come up later as well. But he is asking his dad for knowledge because he thinks that's what his dad wants to hear. His closest relationship, obviously, is with his mum. And his mum tolerates and encourages his imaginary friends. She's like, why don't we ask Tony? Like, so that shows that she encourages him and indulges him and all those nice motherly things. But he's like, gee, dad, why don't you tell me about this? Because his dad needs that validation. And then Jack can't even just be normal and just say and recognize that for what it is and tells him far too much detail because he doesn't play the game of being a dad, even in that moment, like no. not once. And Danny says, I'm hungry. And he's pretty horrible to him about the food situation. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's a bit of a red herring, though. I remember remember watching this bit and going, "Oh, we're going to see some cannibalism there." Yeah, and then never happened. You disappointed a little bit. Yeah, I could have done with a bit of cannibalism. I could have, well, we'll get onto it. But there's some scenes that I do not know why they were taken out. Okay, uh, there's a weird moment where Jack's reading Playgirl in the lobby. <laughs> you don't really see it unless you know. I don't. I the first few times I saw it, I didn't notice it, but I knew that there was an undertone of sexual abuse from the book. Then when it was pointed out to me that the magazine has got his Playgirl, but I didn't really see. The se- I didn't know about that in the book. Yeah, a suggestion. Right. Um, the- yeah, and also and the the, the incident where he broke his arm is re- much the, more like the the arm breaking. I remember. I don't, well, that's in the film as well. It's I don't not- remember. Are you sure there's there's sexual abuse in the book? I don't, I don't think there's actual sexual abuse. I don't think there's even an allusion to it. I, re- I feel like I remember there was a, just a weird phrase where it's like he did something. He got she's told him to back off on a certain thing. I don't know. Okay, uh, but when they go look at the rooms, there's a, there's a brief moment where Jack checks out some some girls who are walking out of the room. There's, there's something going on there. Maybe he's not very happy in his marriage. Yeah, I think, I think that's we get it. a sense that he wants more. He wants more from everything. I get a sense from his marriage, from his career, from his life. He's just not happy in himself. This guy. Yeah, I, but it's difficult, isn't it? Because especially the relationship between Jack and Wendy, you cannot imagine how they ever met. They do mm. not seem together at all. So how did they get married? How like, you're trying to fill in all these gaps, mm. but you can't. You can never see them together. It's because you never get any sense of who she was or is. Yeah, you know, she doesn't seem to have a life outside of this film. Whereas we know that he was a teacher. We know that he wants to be a writer. We know who this guy is, you know, vaguely. But but her, there's nothing. Yeah, you just there's... can't imagine. You fill in. You you like like to imagine the backstory and when mm. they met and like what did that conversation look like? Who said what to who? Like how did they propose to each other? You just can't picture it at all. I just wonder whether he was just drunk the whole time and then he sobered up and, and then found went, himself. oh my God. Yeah, he's found <laughs> himself in this marriage and he's like now for that the first time because he, he's sober. He hates her so much and he's so <laughs> over her. And yeah, you're right. He just came to him and was like, I got pissed for five years and yeah. got married to you. But I think that's what it is. 
Uh, they get a tour. We learn that the hotel is, is located on an Indian burial ground, uh, which I think that comes up in room 237. It does. Um, the film being a metaphor for the genocide of, of the Native <laughs> Americans, which I think I think there's stuff in there. Definitely. Um, <laughs> Then we meet the chef, Halloran, uh, played by Scatman Carruthers. Um, he offers Danny the food that his dad refused him earlier in the yeah. film. He's a good man. He's mm. a good man, Halloran, isn't he? He explains mm. the shining to Danny. Uh, people who shine can see things that happened a long time ago or haven't happened yet. It's weird. They show them the freezer, though. Like, There's a big thing where they show them the freezer. Now, there's a couple of scenes that were cut here where they show them the gold room and they say they've taken all the alcohol away and Jack's like, I don't drink, so we don't, we don't drink is what he says. We don't drink mm. like because he doesn't drink. No like, one drinks. Wendy doesn't drink either. <laughs> so he says, we don't drink. They show them the hedge maze. That went. And it's like, why would you take out introductions to things that have major involvement in the final act and yet you keep the freezer in and we never go back there to disorient you like you said about have you read the book um house of leaves i tried oh god so that's obviously brilliant but that's again the horror of a shifting structure so that i mean there's the book house of leaves is ginormous and it's a book within a book and a film in a book and a documentary in a film and all of this but ostensibly and I think the Donner Party in that, well, people starving to death, like the sort of Quattlemott's pioneers. But the the horror is a structure that never stays in the same place. So, you know, you can put up a shelf and then you come back and the wall has grown. Mm. And so your shelf has fallen down and then you end up in this like portal to hell. That's terrifying. And that's in this as well, that you maybe you don't see those rooms because then when all of a sudden a huge space like the gold room opens up, you're like, I didn't even know that was there. And it makes you feel disoriented and okay. queasy. Yeah. Uh, Danny figures out that some oh no I think Halloran tells him some bad things happen in this place and can leave a trace of themselves behind I feel like it's reading around it it's less literal in the book that these ghosts are sort of echoes and psychic remnants rather than I think they're much more pronounced in the in the book version I I just love the bit where Halloran, uh, Danny says to Halloran, he goes, you're scared of room 237. Halloran goes, no, I ain't. (laughs) (laughs) No, I ain't. Just don't go in there. But I'm not scared of it, by the way. Just also (laughs) stay away from there. But yeah, I could go in there right now and nothing. I wouldn't be scared. So whatever. Yeah. Sharp. And of course, it was room 217 in the book. Yeah. So this, um, This I've forgotten. So did he change it because two times three times seven is 42? No. Right. Okay. He changed it because the moon is 237,000 miles approximately (laughs) from the earth. (laughs) And so it's another allusion to the fact that he filmed the fake Mook landing. But why why did he change it? He changed. No, it's really funny. It's really funny. So they shot the exteriors at the Timberline Lodge located in Mount Hood, Oregon. And the owners of that hotel said, look, we've got a room 217. Oh, right. No one will stay there if you have this scene in this book. Can you change the number? So they changed the number to room 237. Perfect. And yet, uh, so there's no room 237 at that hotel. Yeah. But room 217 is the most popular room in that hotel because everyone <laughs> wants to stay there now. <laughs> so it all comes full circle. But that's why he changed it. Right. A month later, Danny is on his big wheel. Uh, which is this recurring motif throughout the movie, uh, sort of riding around the hotel. And that's filmed with our old friend, Garrett Brown, mm. uh, and his invention, the Steadicam, which yeah. we discussed on Rocky. Uh, but it's classic Kubrick, isn't it? He's cra- crafting this new visual vocabulary in this film because through these journeys through the hotel, which no one has seen the likes of on film before, you sort of get a sense of the size of the hotel. You've got Danny penetrating the, fa- the space. The camera's always moving. It's like a protagonist. Is it the hotel keeping track of them? Mm-hmm. Is that what we're seeing here? Um, the sound is amazing. Oh. Apparently, he 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 fully designed this whole thing, and it wasn't until he got on set that he realised that you'd get this sound of the rug and then the floor and the yeah. rug and the floor, which is hypnotic, and yeah. that's amazing. Cooper's yeah. like, oh my god, this is this is perfect. Yeah. 
Because so Garrett Brown sort of saw what Kubrick was going to do and then went, can I be involved? And he was like, yeah, jump on board. And so he actually got involved in this. And I think he was really excited because it was using the steady cam for what he'd created it for, mm. as opposed to what it had been used for previously. I listened to a four and a half hour podcast about <laughs> uh, The Shining this week uh, called The Projection Booth. And they've got an interview with him on it. And it's really interesting. He he agreed to do it for a few months, at pretty crappy pay. Mm. But he said, I've got to go and shoot Rocky too. So if we go over, you've got to pay me this much money and you've got to concord me back uh, to the States every week to shoot the Steadicam stuff in Rocky 2. And of course, it went over by six months. So he ended up getting paid a shit ton of money to do The Shining and Rocky 2 at the same time with his amazing camera. And so we seen, see some scenes of what's happening in the hotel. Wendy's working. Danny's exploring. Jack's doing fuck all. Doing fuck all. Uh, he's throwing a ball at a wall. But the sound mix again is amazing because you see the typewriter and you hear, the, you hear the noise first and you think, oh, he's working. He's typing. No, he's just playing fucking catch with himself. It's, there's the bit where Wendy and... A bit like you, I remember the first time I saw it, and because of the sort of the, the literature of film that I'd seen at that point was about sort of girls being chased by killers and screaming, and so she fitted into that category. And now to watch it, I am a lot more sympathetic towards her, never more so than the bit where she's prepared breakfast. <gasps> oh my god! On yes. the trolley, yep. and she's pushing it up to Jack, and it's you can see how happy she is that she has done something that she believes is going to yeah. make him happy. But it's, but it's, oh, it's so layered because she's like, oh, morning. And he's like, what time is it? It's 11. And then they try and have this like little bit of, uh, you're relating, but they've been having, oh, it's so gross. They're like, we've been having a lot of late nights. And you're like, what? Having sex? You too. As if, like, what does, what does he do? Like, it seems so alien that they, those two are having fun late nights so that he keeps sleeping in. And then it's so tense and he doesn't really look at her. He looks at himself in the mirror and then she's like, I've made you some eggs and you know that he's just going to throw it at her, but she doesn't. But it's all very tense and weird, but they don't seem like a couple. I can't even imagine them hugging. Mm. And I don't even think, do they ever touch at all in the whole film? Apart from like trying to kill her. I hadn't thought about that, but you're absolutely right, yeah. They don't touch, mm, no. no. It's just the look on her face when she takes the the little lid yeah. off the food. She's done him like a sexy room service. And then he just sort of he doesn't use cutlery or anything, just <laughs> jabs the bacon into the yolk. It's really sort of like it's just sort of he's going, he's like, it's just nourishment for him. There's yeah. no appreciation of the effort that she's made. And and she's trying to use the hotel for what it is, which is like, oh, we're having a sexy weekend away. So I've got the little trolley and the tray. And you didn't have to do any of that. It's really upsetting. Poor Wendy. Poor Wendy. Yeah. Uh, we also get this uh, amazing shot of Wendy and Danny lost in the maze and the camera stalking them and Jack looking down at this model of the maze, which it was so amazing how they filmed that using this composite um, with a, a model. And then on the outskirts of London, they had the actors filming a little thing and they, they filmed them in, from the top of an apartment block to put all this together, which would just be quite simple to do that now. But yeah. the what the lengths that Kubrick went to to make this, I don't know, make it feel like, is Jack controlling this maze? Is this maze Jack's mind? Mm. You know, it's... Um... Just to go back to that Wendy thing as well, it's weird because... I really clung on to that moment because it, it's actually a very emotional moment when you sort of watch her in that scene. And those moments are fairly scant in yeah. this movie. There aren't many of them. And there's a quote that Stephen King has about one of the reasons he doesn't like it. And it sort of rings true when you think about that moment because it is a powerful moment. It is heartbreaking. And Stephen King said, uh, this movie, The Shining, is made by a man who thinks too much and feels too little. Mm -hmm. And when you sort of see that, you're like, there isn't a lot of emotion like that you can attach to. No, you can't connect with it. Mm. 
Um, sorry, I was just that's is that is that the quote from the Playboy interview? Uh, I just want to credit that one. I don't know. Yeah, off the top. I of think it might be. Um, I've got some more quotes from that because that's an amazing from 1983. Him talking about this. This is where I think a lot of the juicy quotes come from. Although I've got a recent one coming up as well, which made me laugh. But that's the two versions of the horror, isn't it? Because in the book, you are watching a man that is your dad because he's a normal person, and then he's going to kill you. In the film, you're watching someone who's not your dad, but he's just the most craziest person you've ever met in your life. And what is he capable of? But both things are horrifying. Mm. Um, and we've got two really good versions of each kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, so we're into Tuesday and Jack is hammering away as a typewriter um, Wendy's breaking his concentration the nag uh, he gets quite passive aggressive and then he just gets aggressive he, he, <laughs> he starts off playing the tortured artist and then he he proceeds to tell us to get the fuck out and it snows and Jack looks insane uh, watching them through the window but that's yep. all that happens Tuesday Tuesday's quite brief but actually if you watch the two hour version my, you know, one of my big gripes with this film if you want to be like he's like well he's always mad and he's always whatever but He's really gone at that point where he's looking out of the yes. window. But that, if you're watching the two-hour version, you're 30 minutes in. So actually, if that's going to propel you into Act 2, Kubrick gets a pass from me structurally <laughs> there, which obviously will be relieved to hear posthumously. Uh, we're in Saturday and we meet the twins. I, I think they've appeared a couple of times earlier, sort of almost subliminally in, in visions that Danny's having. Uh, but this is the moment where they talk to him and say they're not at all ominous. Would you want to do it, Alex? What? Hello, Danny. <laughs> Come and play with us, Danny. Forever and ever and ever. And then we see shots of them bloody, axed and dead, which I think is the only piece of gore in the movie. Yeah. Which is remarkable. Apart from uh, whatever the owner's called with the thing in his head later. Like it's, what does he say? It's a fabulous party, isn't it? He's got a, sure. he's got a split head. But well, that's it. Yeah, yeah, because Halloran, get, and that's already happened off screen. The only person that gets murdered on screen like that is, is Halloran, but it's not gory. It's, it's It was originally. It was He gets hit over the head with the axe originally. It was filmed. He gets hit over the head with the axe originally, and then Jack dismembers him cool. in the foyer, and Stanley Kubrick went, I don't want gore in this, so he cut it. Well, it's interesting showing you as well that Kubrick didn't know where he was going from the off with this because in his very original treatment, um, Halloran, uh, Jack dies, <laughs> Halloran picks up the axe and Halloran starts trying to kill Danny. Oh. So that was in a very early version that, that Kubrick wrote. Oh, wow. Um, so uh, poor Danny's terrified and then we're into Monday. Now, the bit where he's going around the corridors, did it not remind you of Ghostbusters when they're looking for Slimer? <laughs> <laughs> when he's just sort of going on his trike down the corridors and he passes room 237 I'm like this is like Peter Venkman and Ray Stance yeah. looking for Slimer I mean it is a hotel so um, would you believe it you type that into YouTube there's a mashup. Oh, really? There's a mashup of The Shining oh, really and that. the twins talking and like Peter Venkman was like it's here Ray it's looking it's right. looking right at me and it's the twins going come and play with us play with us forever oh send that to me <laughs> Uh, Jack's looking quite dishevelled now on the bed. He calls Danny over for a hug. This is a disturbing, awful, awful scene. Because Danny's doing that same thing he did before, which is kids lie to make their parents feel better. So he's like, are you having a good time? He's like, yeah. And he's like, obviously not. (laughs) But again, when he hugs him, you never think he's hugged him in a nice way ever. No. Like he doesn't look like, it doesn't even look like his kid. Like at it's all. so, it's so ominous. I mean, you, you talked about the abuse thing. You do, you do fear that some abuse is about to happen in yeah. this scene. Uh, Which but is they, why Danny's so good at telling lies. Cause in a child in that situation lies to survive because they can't tell their caregiver the truth about how they're feeling because they'll get beaten or whatever, or told to show up or whatever. So it's so chilling to watch a little boy 
jump through those hoops. And if the Grady girls are speaking for the hotel on uh, on Saturday, then on Monday, Jack's now speaking for the hotel. He says, I want you to like it here. I wish we could stay here forever and ever and ever. Um, and Danny asks him if he'd ever hurt mummy and him, which you, you get a sense this is Danny's greatest fear, which we'll come back to. And uh, Jack says, I'd never do anything to hurt him. But his face and his expression is saying I think that's the opposite. A lie. Yeah. <laughs> and then we're into Wednesday, which is when the shit goes down. <laughs> uh, so there's a ball that, that, that leads Danny, the, the ball that, that Jack was th- throwing around earlier, leads Danny to room 237, which is now open. And I like it happens here and in the whole film, everything is wide lenses so we can see where the horror is going to come from. It's not trying to shock you with with jump scares. Uh, maybe there's one jump scare in the movie, but it's really he's he's 90% of the film takes place during the day in light with these wide angles. So you can see everything, which is just so the opposite of what we're used to from horror, um, which I think is remarkable. But. Uh, Danny, we don't see what happens to Danny in room 237, but he emerges with uh, bruises on his neck. Then we've got Jack making his way to the ballroom bar. Uh, he does say, Alex, this is when the, 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 it's yeah. starting to come in here. He says, I'd do anything for a drink. He says, I'd mm. sell my soul for, the, for a glass of beer. Which mm. is a bit on the nose, actually, but fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, so it's all there. Uh, <laughs> but in the book, it's more explained that the, that the drinking helps Jack to repress the memories of his father's violence, whereas mm. obviously there's no hint of that here. But it'll come up on, on Thursday's episode when we talk about how Dan uses drink to, to, to repress his his memories. Um, so uh, he starts speaking to Lloyd behind the bar, but he's looking in the mirror. You mentioned the mirror earlier. It's remarkable how many times when he's seeing a ghost, he's actually looking in a mirror in the movie. Yeah, he was meant to see, there was meant to be a shot here where he looks in the mirror and all the guests are skeletons. And they were real skeletons that Kubrick used. So every single guest, uh, suddenly becomes a skeleton that he's seeing. And there's another bit later on. Well, I'll, I'll mention it when we get to it. But do you know why Lloyd is... I, I didn't know this until after about, I don't know, my 10th viewing of the movie. Do you know why all the ghosts are so scary? Why Lloyd is so scary? Because they don't blink. They don't blink. Yeah. I didn't notice that mm, until yeah. like after I'd watched it loads of times. But that's why they're yeah. so scary. It's, like, it's just the creepy unset. You don't notice it. It's in your subconscious. Your, your sort of animal senses mm. are going, this is not right. Yeah, and you don't know why. You're yeah. just unnerved by it. And then, yeah, it's because they don't blink. And, and who did that in a previous episode? Well, I didn't blink at all. No, not one of us. <laughs> a character. A character. Go on. Uh, Sixth Sense. Hayley Joel Osment doesn't blink in the Sixth Sense. Huh? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and this is when we learn information that I think you had if you've watched the American version at the start of the movie. I'm going to talk about that stuff at the end here. But uh, we learn that Jack did hurt Danny once. Um, he calls it a momentary loss of muscular coordination. <laughs> uh, it's pretty grim. Uh, and so uh, Jack himself heads to room 237. Uh, did you find this film, this scene sexy when you were younger, Alex? Probably a little yeah, bit. Initially, yeah, initially. Yeah, I think I did, yeah. yeah. I mean, for like kudos and props to her for remaining so completely still. And if you know how many takes it would have taken to do it, she's got no clothes on. Mm. She's this statue. She's like, like is she a dancer? Because the way she gets out of the bath like, is very graceful. But she just stands there, like facing down this maniacal little elf actor who will do what he wants. And she's, uh, I think she has the, well, of course she does. She has the power in that scene. But it's an incredible thing to do. 
if you think about the work mm. of it, like the nuts and bolts well, standing both, there. Both the women in this scene, I don't know much about them, but I know that both of them, this was their only screen credit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's the, the, this naked woman, Jack smiles, approaches her, she kisses. And then when he looks in the mirror, he realises it's this old crone with, with skin uh, hanging off her. Um, and she laughs at him, which is, I think, all part of this undermining his masculinity. Yeah. Uh, when he's sort of sexually mm-hmm. turned on and then being laughed at, um, which I think is his great fear. And that's happened in room 237, just like with Danny. His great fear was being abused and he's and he's comes out with bruises. And so I think in room 237, this is where their their greatest fears come to them. I'm not sure, but that's what I think. That's interesting because you don't think Wendy's the sort of person that would laugh at him in that way because she seems quite weak. So it can't be Wendy that's made him feel sexually ridiculous. It just doesn't track, does it? But I, I, I agree with what you're saying, but maybe there was someone else. Is it, yeah, is it sexually ridiculous? Or it's, it's, he's obviously got this desire for younger, more beautiful women. Right. And maybe in his subconscious, he feels like they just laugh at him. Yeah, and Wendy isn't that. So he's mm. sort of settled. Because he's he doesn't he's lost his, his mojo, which the booze gave him most likely. Yeah. So now he feels like he's been stripped of his identity. So when he's out of there, he thinks that uh, he claims that Danny's done this, these injuries to himself, and Wendy Wendy wants to get Danny out of there. Yeah, she's got to leave the hotel, uh, and he loses his shit uh, with her because just when he's making something of himself, she's trying to <laughs> fuck it up. Um, he starts trashing the place, and that's when he then goes and finds uh, the party happening in the gold room, the sort of nineteen twenties uh, party going on. He orders more bourbon. Mm-hmm. Um, he has Advocast building in, which made me excited as it means it's nearly snowball season. <laughs> I fucking <laughs> love a snowball. That's the one drink I won't drink. Do you have eggnog? No, gross. Really? And then you know that it kills me to say that. If we were at, say, a German-themed Christmas market and there was no other alcohol, I still wouldn't drink Advocar. I tried to buy some last year for our final Christmas show right. to have to have snowballs in here. And I'll do it again this year. It's, it's hard to find, even at Christmas. It's annoying. <laughs> but I'll do it this year. It'll just be more for me and you, Alex. Absolutely. I love that stuff. No. Just, yeah, don't drink beforehand. Um, and he meets Delbert Grady. Yeah. So here we Delbert are. Grady. A different first name. Uh, but... This Grady also has a wife and two daughters. Um, so I love this bathroom scene so much. So it throws it's up so questions. Good. What is going on? Why is it Charles Grady at the beginning and Delbert Grady now? Are they the same person? Is it reincarnation? Are they related? Um, are they manifestations of a similar entity? Is he always at the hotel? What is going on here? Oh, it doesn't matter. That's the answer. Like It doesn't matter because this scene is where you realise... You are in a madman's dream of a dead man's fantasy, Delbert Grady's fantasy, because he was consumed by the hotel to kill his children and kill himself. And then the Charles Grady thing is in the mix, again, just to discombobulate you, because you're like, I thought you were called Charles, so you, you don't know where you are. And he's in the gold room, Delbert is, to protect himself because he knows he's done a bad thing somewhere underneath it all, but he can't remember it. So that's the moment when you realise the power of the hotel and that's why it's the scariest scene mm. in the whole film. Mm. I think it's scary because of the way the power dynamic shifts halfway through. Like it starts off and Delbert is being you know, very subservient to Jack and he's cleaning him and he's going, yes, I'm sorry, sir, and all the rest of it. And then halfway through it changes and he starts taking control yeah. and going, perhaps you need to... Correct. If you don't mind me saying, so, yeah, and it, like the sort of politeness is tagged onto the end yeah. almost unwillingly. He's so good. Philip Stone, who obviously we all know from Temple of Doom, he's Captain uh, Captain Blumbart. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, 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 Captain Blumbart, and also he was in that movie we were talking about that we have to do at some point. Maybe the Medusa touch. 
We'd never do that. Yeah, we will. <laughs> Don't yeah, you think it's brilliant when he says about the girls, Delbert says, and the twins, they tried to burn down mm. the hotel? Because just with that one little line, you've given those girls some agency because all they are are dead girls. Yeah. And then to know that they knew that something was up and they tried to burn it down yeah. is, is brilliant. And it's a nod to the novel because the, the, the hotel does get burned yeah. down in the novel, but it doesn't, very much doesn't here. Yeah. There's a line in there as well where he's, uh, Jack says to him, I saw your picture in the newspaper. And that refers to a scene that was cut that apparently Diane Johnson really fought to keep in, which is another bit from the novel where Jack finds the hotel has basically left out a scrapbook of its history and he starts to use it as inspiration for his novel just like in the book mm. and that's where he sees Delbert O'Grady's photo mm. beforehand the scrapbook's still in there though it's on his table but you don't see you don't see the introduction no. to it of what it's actually about uh, this is what the film's assistant editor Gordon Stainforth said about uh, the name Confucian he said I don't think we'll ever quite unravel this was his full name Charles Delbert Grady perhaps Charles was a sort of nickname perhaps Ullman got the name wrong but I also think that Stanley did not want the whole story to fit together too neatly so he's absolutely correct I think to say that the sum of what we learn refuses to add up neatly yeah um, so yes, you've talked about that stuff. So um, Halloran flies to the rescue through a snowstorm because he's a good man, isn't he, Halloran? Yeah. Although, what? An, what's his room about? Oh, I love it. What's wrong with his room, dude? <laughs> no, what you mean is the naked lady yeah, pictures. So I when I watched it when I was nineteen, I didn't get it a bit. I was just like, okay. But now being older. I really love it for him because he's an older man, but he's still lustful. He's still got desires. He can still look at naked ladies. It makes him seem like a more well-rounded person. I, I agree. I think it's just a shock when you expect that character to be quite a homely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's sort of when you're like, he lives in something with porn on the wall. Yeah, walls. he's a real man kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Not porn, just a beautiful lady. Two right. beautiful ladies. Uh <laughs> <laughs> So, important uh, 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 scene coming up. Come on, hold it together, people. Uh, Wendy is stalking into the writing room with a baseball bat and she finds what he has been writing for the past few weeks. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> all Poor work, old Wendy. All work and no play makes Dak Jack a dull boy. Uh, entertain me while we do this, but a lot of people think the uh, all is A11 Apollo 11. <laughs> Another apology for filming the fake moon landings from Stanley Kubrick there. Oh, okay. Uh, interestingly, when they shot this, um, Kubrick did different versions for different countries. Yeah. Oh, so right. written down. So the translations were different based on phrases that you would have from those countries. So in Germany, it was never put off till tomorrow what may be done today. Okay. In Italian, it was the morning has gold in its mouth. In French, it was one here you go is worth more than two you'll ne you'll have it, and the Spanish is no matter how early you get up, you can't make the sunrise any sooner. None of them as good as all work and no play, uh, which is good because he then for the DVD release uh, for, for the video releases he went back to all of them having the same. So it's interesting he got a bit thrown off there, or maybe he didn't have confidence in the brilliance of that line, yeah. and it is. Brilliant yes. and chilling. Mm. Um, and this is where I think you get... Uh, no, I don't think you get it. It's a bit later because he just strolls up. But then Jack appears behind her and says, how do you like it? <laughs> <laughs> I think he's really funny here. It's, it's, it's one of the most terrifying scenes in the film, but it's also when he's at his funniest because, you know, when he's saying, Wendy, darling, light of my life, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. <laughs> it's funny, but it's frightening. I'm laughing and I'm scared. It's, yeah. the, the funnier bit is where he goes... 
he goes, and when do you think he should maybe be taken to a doctor? <laughs> as soon as possible. As soon as possible. <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> when he mocks her. Yeah. And that's when she goes, Jack. And she finally goes, this isn't fun anymore. Yeah. But she, all she says as well, like, bless her. She's used to appeasing his temper because she's like, I'm, I'm very confused right now. Rather mm. than being like, what the, what the fuck is going on? I think I just need to sleep. I need to go back yeah. to my room. Rather than saying, I, rather than saying to him anything that would make him angrier, she's saying the least worst thing, which is I just need to go and have a little lie down and then everything will be fine. Rather than saying, I am going to hit you with this bat if I can. And she does hit him. And it's brilliant because you don't think she's capable of it. You've you see had her go your <laughs> whole fucking life to think things over. What's a few minutes more going to do for you now? But then, Which is the first time he actually threatens her life with that line. Because at that point, he's just being really menacing. But when he actually says, you know, what's, what's a few minutes more yeah. going to do for you now? He's basically saying... I'm about to kill you. Yeah, but it's in, why is it that he looks so fresh in the t- in the the scene, like not sweaty, like he seems quite together, and she's a wreck. Mm. So she she's had to go backwards up the stairs 135 times, whatever it was. Did he, did he not? Did they shoot it? Do you know? What I mean, why is mm. he so relatively composed? Well, she's hysterical, and he isn't. Yeah, I suppose that that's because the scene demanded that. It is I just he just seems like he, he's it's his first take kind of thing. Mm. But. I feel like it's because she's terrified and he's not. He's yeah. So she's sweating and, and dishevelled because of that. But that's why it's so good because it's horror, real world horror. He's gone mad. He, she's in an abusive situation. In the real, in films, if you're being threatened, you think, oh, you bonk someone on the head and you run away forever and you get away. Or there's somewhere to go. There's obviously nowhere to go because it's snowing. But it just made you realise if that's your husband coming upstairs and he's saying, I'm going to kill you, what are you actually going to do about that? Like, unless you hit him once and you get really lucky and you knock him out, but you are happens. so fucked. She is. She does get lucky. She does, yeah. She doesn't, she doesn't like go, I'm going to hit you and, and smack him. It's like she's yeah. just swinging the bat and she managed to, to catch him. Yeah. Now, doesn't she catch his fingers first and then he gets distracted yeah. and she swings again and he's not mm. looking and bang. Yeah. So but it's, you're, it's unintentional. You're so not, yeah, you're just completely not expecting her to be able to do it so it's brilliant that she does she drags him yeah, to but she doesn't though really she... she's just waving it she's trying to ward him off and manages to clip him yeah I don't think she ever I think there's a difference if she'd actually gone this is me trying to strike him I agree yeah she drags him to the storeroom and it's amazing on that behind the scenes film um, watching them rehearse the lines in this sequence because it's sort of they build the scene with Kubrick and he's trying out camera angles and they're trying out line readings and I think this is the key line that people say about Kubrick in this film when uh, Jack does a line reading uh, Stanley says to him yeah it's real but it's not interesting Right, and that's what you keep hearing. That's what he wants. He doesn't want reality. He wants something that's going to be engaging on screen, and so that's why you know it gets increasingly over the top from here. Uh, we learn that that Jack's broken the snowcat and the radio, and then we get the final um, the flash on screen, four p.m. <laughs> it's weirdly specific, um, and Delbert Grady is somehow now talking uh, to Jack, and Grady frees him. Yeah, I always thought this was a bit of a cheat. Yeah. <laughs> it like really bothers me that he like Wendy has actually managed to sort this shit out mm. and the hotel goes, it breaks the rules, yeah. in my opinion. What or you, this is the first time that Kubrick's admitting that there's something supernatural happening at the hotel. This is this is when it's true. Everything else could be in people's heads, but this is this is true. A spirit has come and freed Jack. Mm. So yeah. it is real. And this is why Kubrick says The Shining is his most optimistic film. Right. Because uh, it's life after death. Because it presumes life after death. Right. That scene says this, this oh, is real. Well, that's nice. <laughs> He's a weird man. <laughs> so the bit that we're coming to with the room where he breaks into back into the flat, the line that gets all the credit is, here's Johnny. 
The funny line is when he breaks through the first door and goes, Wendy, <laughs> I'm home. <laughs> That's fucking true. brilliant. Uh, before then, we've got Danny. Um, he's chanting red rum in his Tony voice. He's brandishing a knife. He writes red rum on the door. And then Wendy wakes up and you've got that visual in the mirror, of course, yeah. of murder. I remember that really got me yeah. the first time I watched it. Yeah. Red rum is murder backwards. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> weird, isn't it? It's because of the horse as well. I, like... I know. You sort of think of the horse and then yeah. it's just strange why it had such an impact. Yeah. Uh, that here's Johnny line, though. That would have had no meaning outside of America. Mm. Certainly no. not. Certainly not then. It does now. People people know Johnny Carson is over here. But not... I think I remember watching it the first time going, I don't understand mm. why he's calling himself Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or you, I just grew up, before I saw the film, you grew up knowing the line. Yeah, I grew up knowing the pulse and my friend who I tried to watch it with. She had an older brother and he had the poster. So I had no idea what it was, mm. but the, you know, the, his face through the thing and it said, here's John underneath it's, it. It's, but it didn't make any sense. It's a great image. Um, this is when I had some more notes about, about how he gets the actors going. But he, the quote is, he liked actors. He liked it when actors have nothing left to give as that's when they deliver something insane. And that's what he wanted in this scene. Um, Halloran arrives and saves Wendy. Um, and that's when we get the one jump scare, I think, when Jack comes around the corner and axes Halloran. I've seen this movie so many times and watching Halloran walk up the foyer, I was, like, I was like, I can't remember which fucking pillar Jack's behind. And it scared the life out of me. Yeah. But why didn't Halloran see that coming? He's not that good at shining, is he? Why didn't Danny go, but I think he's behind the pillar, <laughs> Mr. Halloran. The only friend I ever had. He's behind the pillar. I managed to call you from fucking Miami. I can't let you know he's behind pillar number four, the fourth one. Look out! Uh, then we're into the home straight because Jack's stalking Danny Boy with his bad leg. Hey! Uh, he's... <laughs> <laughs> He's he sort of losing the power of speech, isn't he? Do it again, do it again. I love that. <laughs> but doesn't he remind you of a zombie in this scene? Because he's got the leg trailing. He's going slowly, but you're never in any doubt that he will catch up with Danny and kill him. Ready, boy! <laughs> what you think is, maybe because of the book, even though the maze isn't in the book, that your dad is screaming at you to come here and your instinct is you will just do what you're told. So the louder he shouts... What Danny's got on his side is that the cold is making him lose his uh, pronunciation or whatever, but that Danny might just not have the strength to disobey his dad. Mm. That's what I thought. Um, Wendy sees uh, Felatio Bear with his open arse. Fuck flap. me, that bear. I can't. So hot. It's so hot. <laughs> Every time I see it, sexy, I'm, sexy. I'm just it's so scared. But then I'm like, why is there not more of that as well? Because it is. Why does it scare you? Because uh, of the old timey costume, mm. not because of the blowjob necessarily, but the is it an old looking <laughs> also, bear you, you thing? Also, don't, you don't think of ghosts getting and giving blowies. You don't, do you actually? <laughs> <laughs> it's got less scary for me. So the first time I watched it was on a VHS uh, on an old TV in, you know, late 80s probably. And you couldn't really make out yeah. what you were seeing. And that somehow made it scary. Mm. It was just sort of this weird shape. You're like, is it an animal? Yeah. Is it like you didn't know? And, and also, actually, as I've got more clarity, I'm like, oh, it's a costume. Is it going in a costume? But they sort of look, even though he's got an inanimate old-timey bear face, I think... Well, this What's an old-timey bear face? It's like an old-timey... <laughs> <twinkle. laughs> I'm an old-timey bear. Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> look like a modern bear. But I think <laughs> What's a modern bear look like? <laughs> you know what Is I'm it looking about. at an iPhone? Some Ray-Bans on, a baseball hat. An old-timey bear, however. It's the Roaring Twenties. I'm an old-timey bear. Come on in, son. I do think he's saying... 
would you like to join us? That's what the look on that bear's face is. Well, it's a, I, I believe it's a dog costume in the book, but it's all part of the what was going on in the twenties. That this that, that, that everyone there was sex and booze in this hotel. All the ghosts get a backstory properly yeah. as part of this party scene. Everyone being ostentation and living living up. So Kubrick, it's funny. He's chosen just to grab the imagery, and he as ever with this film, he doesn't want to give you anything else. This flash will be enough. Yeah. And he's actively taken stuff out because at the start there's a bit where Ullman, which was taken out, Ullman goes and it's heyday. The Overlook was, you know, where all the big famous people, we had mm. presidents stay here. It was the it was the place to be in the 20s. So they actually reference that and he goes, nope, let's just take it out because it'll make the mm. shit weirder later on. Yeah, I think it's in the photos that we're going to get to in a second, but you can't see any of the bloody photos. Mm. But if you look in the Kubrick ar- archive, apparently, you can see famous people around in those other photos. So uh, Danny runs outside, makes it into the, into the maze. Um, it's funny when you when you see the behind the scenes. It's all kind of red and orange at night. Uh, that uh, where how it all looks with that maze. And so they went to they spent ages in a lab converting it all to look blue, mm. um, just to just to contrast with the inside and the outside. Um, and it's quite weird when you watch that documentary that the maze is actually indoors. That I didn't like that. Yeah, I didn't like knowing that. <laughs> well, that's they. I mean, wasn't it the largest set ever built at Pinewood at the time? Because they built wow. a full scale yeah. Overlook Hotel at Madness. Pinewood. Yeah. So uh, Danny realises he can be followed in the snow So he's very clever He goes back on his own tracks He confuses Jack uh, Danny follows his own tracks back out And makes it to mum And they drive away in Halloran Snowcat uh, Jack starts raving he's, Do you want to do some of that Alex? Daddy! Yeah, that's great It's great <laughs> Um, I uh, so pleased. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's not like uh, <laughs> he, he falls and he's failed because we then cut to him frozen in the daylight, and we get really good uh, that 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 jump cut from mm-hmm. like to him just sort of collapsing to ding. The first time I saw it, I thought it, I laughed. I, I thought it looked funny, mm-hmm. and then I've got it's become more scary over the years. I find it scary. I always found it scary. I find it really disturbing. Mm-hmm. And then we get this tracking shot towards the photos in the gold room. And we see the Outlook Hotel, uh, July 4th ball, 1921. Mm. And there is Jack in the middle of the photo. I think I enjoy this movie more now because I've made my peace with trying to work it out. And I just enjoy it for what it is. But I remember being, I think, quite frustrated because I think I'd never seen a film which didn't make sense at the end uh, and every or if it didn't, there was a way of working it out. If you didn't immediately get it, you were like, let's talk about this. Uh Aha. Got it. Yeah. And to sort of end on something that is never workoutable is uh, when you're young, you're like, fuck this. Kubrick has gone on record about it. Um, he said the photograph suggests that Jack was a reincarnation of an earlier official at the hotel. And I wish he hadn't done that. I wish he'd taken that Don McLean approach to explaining stuff. Do you ever hear that of him with American Pie? When someone asks him what that song means, he says it means I never have to work another day in my life. <laughs> That's all you need to say, because I don't think it's that simple. I don't like that explanation. No. I like that the hotel has absorbed him mm. and he's gone into the heyday because he'll have all the booze will be flowing. It's what he wants. And it's when the hotel was at its most powerful because it was, you know, so prestigious. And that's where Jack needs to be. So he's been kind of absorbed into its past. But that suggests that it's a good thing, Jack being absorbed into the hotel for Jack, where I don't think it is. For the whole thing, I'm, I'm the overlook is fundamentally evil. Yeah. And so, yeah. But w- wouldn't the wouldn't... idea that he's him dying, you know, is like, and he gets to live out his sort of days, well, not live out his days, exist forevermore yeah. at his happiest, which I don't think he does. And certainly, if when we get onto Doctor Sleep, he clearly doesn't. Mm. W- wouldn't Kubrick's explanation, though, sort of uh, tie up with the, the Grady's? Yeah. The two different Grady's potentially the... being a reincarnation? 
It's like, who cares if they're reincarnated? Isn't it more scary, more malevolent if anyone can be drawn into this web kind of thing? I don't know. Yeah, it has to be that Jack has been sucked into the Overlook because if it's if the, if he's just a human who died in a maze and that's just a completely different guy, that spoils the end for me. Okay. Yeah. So Kubrick is wrong, I'm afraid. Uh, but talking about... Kubrick being cold and King being warm. I think this is funny. The fact that the in in the King ending, the hotel blows up in a fiery ball of flames, and that, I think that makes King not just metaphorically but also literally warmer than Kubrick, who ended in the icy cold. Mm. Um, so Kubrick wasn't done there. So uh, after its premiere and a week into the general run of this film, the film had a, a running time of 146 minutes. Uh, he cut out a scene at the end that took place in hospital. The scene shows Wendy in a bed talking with Mr. Ullman, who explains that Jack's body could not be found. He then gives Danny a yellow tennis ball, presumably the same one that Jack was throwing around the hotel, suggesting that the evil might continue. You cannot see that scene. Um, at so Kubrick upsetting. sent a guy around New York and Los Angeles to physically cut the scene out of every print. He went round in a limousine from cinema to cinema and cut it out. So only those audiences that first week got to see that scene. Okay. Um, and then for its release in Europe, he cut a further 25 minutes from the film. And the big thing was uh, a scene at the beginning. So you cross cut from Jack's meeting with Ullman. And his interview there with Danny being interviewed, uh, being attended by a doctor and the doctor interviewing his mum and uh, where they talk about the fact that Jack hurt Danny. Yeah. Which uh, it's all about mirrors. And so that would have been a good scene to have the cross cutting. But I think we get that information later in the film. So it actually wasn't necessary. And I think the two hours that we get, I think is just right. There's extended other stuff. I feel like some of the deleted scenes you've seen are maybe in the American cut. Mm. Would that be true? Yeah, possibly, because they had uh, next to them uh, excised from European cut. So I'd imagine they were in the American cut. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, I just get the, the fact that you cannot see this hospital footage, like it was all destroyed afterwards. I, I love stuff like that. It's like the famous King Kong footage yeah. from the 1933 King Kong where they fall into the ravine and there's the giant insects uh, down there. And they, uh, they took it out because they were like, this is too horrific. And then they lost it. And it's just like the idea that you'll never get to see I, something. I don't think it's been destroyed. Uh, one of the interviews on that projection booth that I listened to, someone who worked on the film um, said they all got together, I don't know, 15 years ago, 10 years ago at L Street uh, to, for screening the film. And they were told it was going to be that version of the film. They even talked about it at the beginning, in the present. In the, in the introduction they said we're going to see the scene we all haven't seen in years and then it wasn't that version the Kubrick estate didn't send it over and so the belief is that it's the Kubrick estate have it but Kubrick's um, decision was no one should ever see it and they're very good yeah. and Warner Bros are very good they, we will not see that yeah it's the same as the good because that's the 2001 thing as well when they found um, a, a different cut to that and um, it was his wish that that wasn't shown yeah. so they were like no not showing you it um, so The Shining received no Oscar nominations, no BAFTA nominations and no Golden Globe nominations, which is mad when you think about it, even if you weren't going to give it for acting directing. Yeah. Like what a technical achievement this yeah. film is. And no one was interested in honouring it in any uh, way, shape or form. Mad. I uh, did like the fact it came out on Friday the 13th. Though. Oh, <laughs> yeah. uh, you've said this quite, but I just, I, I'll do another little bit of it. This is King on the Kubrick version. Uh, I think this is from 83 in Playboy. Uh, I'll post that interview. It took me about two hours to read it so long, but it's brilliant interview. And he says, parts of the film are chilling, charged with a relentlessly claustrophobic terror, but others fall flat. 
Not that religion has to be involved in horror, but a visceral sceptic such as Kubrick just couldn't grasp the sheer inhuman evil of the Overlook Hotel. So he looked instead for evil in the characters and made the film into a domestic tragedy with only vaguely supernatural overtones. And that was the basic flaw because he couldn't believe he couldn't make the film believable to others. Um, and he does seem to have flip-flopped over the years. I've seen him say positive things, mm. him say negative things. His most recent, though, was during the promotion of Doctor Sleep and he was still being quite down on it back then. Yes. Uh, well, the introduction to Doctor Sleep, I've got some quotes for Thursday. But this is my favourite. Um, in 2017, uh, Blumhouse, the makers of horror movies, tweeted a video detailing their top five Stephen King adaptations and asking people for their favourites. Uh, the Shining topped the Blumhouse list and Stephen King responded to the tweet by simply stating, not this one. And that's The Shining. Well done. Should we really do the good. bits? Well done, yeah. Chris. Well done. Oh, sad. You all right? All right. <laughs> uh, what's your favourite scene, Al? Uh, Jack confronting Wendy after she finds the typewriter and that whole sequence right up until when she clocks him on the head. I think he is just brilliant in that scene. Either that or, as we mentioned earlier, the bathroom scene with Delbert O'Grady. Vicky? The bathroom scene with Delbert O'Grady. Mm. Yeah, Grady, not O'Grady. It is a great scene. Uh, I'm going to say one as you. I think the moment when she, she finds all work and no play, mm. I wasn't expecting that the first time I saw it. And it's such a shock because I guess it becomes more frightening the more you think about it. And then when you watch it again, when you see him bashing away at the typewriter in the film, Very and you know that's on. what he's writing. Yeah. It's like, wow, this was happening before I realised. Uh, most valuable whatever, Vicky. So I'm going to say the Overlook Hotel, and I don't mean the set design, although obviously the set design is amazing. What I mean is when you see the rivers of blood come down the lift doors, it's very clear to me that that's not what has happened. Like this idea about in the Indian burial ground and a massacre, this is just me. I don't see that there would be that amount of blood. I think what you're seeing is what the hotel wants to happen. Like rivers, and so much blood that it would lift the furniture, which is like incomprehensible. So what I mean is the way that you can feel what the hotel wants and what it's trying to do. And it's it's the set design plus the music, plus the lighting, plus the performances. And that's obviously all wrapped up in the direction. But I know it's such a cliche, but the Overlook is a character. So um, I'm picking the Overlook Hotel itself. Excellent. Alex? Uh, the most valuable whatever is possibly the moment we haven't talked about where you see Danny playing on the floor. And the floor carpet oh, yeah. is the shape of the Apollo 11 launch pad. <laughs> and then he literally stands up from the carpet. He launches himself up off the carpet and he's wearing an Apollo 11 jumper. Right. It's the Apollo 11 taking off. It's Stanley Kubrick apologising for filming the fake moon landings <laughs> on a film set. Or Jack Nicholson. <laughs> uh, I want to give a shout out to Shelley Duvall. I was thinking about picking her because I feel sorry for her. I think she does a good job. I, I think she's actually amazing in the film. And I think the fact that she took all the blame is completely out of order. Uh, blame Kubrick if you want to blame anyone. But <laughs> that said, I'm going to give it to Stanley Kubrick. Uh, largely because I haven't read the book, so I can't give it to Stephen King. But the ghosts in the hallway, the blood coming out of the elevator, those typewritten pages, those are all from the mind of Stanley Kubrick. And it's the best stuff in the movie. And so it has to be him for me. And if you could change anything, um, what would you change, Alex? Um, it's a bit of a, a swizz because I'm picking something from the book that I wish Stanley Kubrick could put in the film, but I'm going to go with it because the topiary animals in the book, basically what they are, they're these ferocious looking hedges that are all cut to look like animals, obviously. But every time Danny turns his back, they move towards him. So they chase him and he's trying to get back to the hotel. And every time he turns around to look, They've got closer and closer and eventually they're right behind him and then one reaches out 
and claws at him. And that's how he gets injured in the book. And I think that's the moment Wendy thinks it's Jack who's hurt him. Mm. It's one of these animals. And I remember reading that and just being terrified by the idea of these giant hedge animals moving every time you turned away. And it's great. And I just, I love the hedge maze. But I think I think Hubert could have done something amazing with that concept. I think visually it would have been really mm. scary. I also wish he'd put back in, there's a scene where Wendy's wandering around the foyer at the end looking for Danny. And it's, you can see it on YouTube, it's in the TV spot that I saw. And it's loads of skeletons sitting around and the cobwebs everywhere and all these dead corpses basically littering the foyer. And it's just a really good image. And it marks it out, I guess, as more of a like a direct horror movie, and it's sort of like something that you go, Jesus Christ, what an image, as opposed to, well, no, not as it's, opposed to anything. It's still good as it is, but it's just a really cool scene. It sounds to me you just want the American version. I think largely. I do. Yeah, yeah, and which is fine. get the American version here? I'm then? sure we can. Okay. I'm sure we can. But I we, need to watch the American version. We watched. We didn't. Uh, Vicky. It's only little. Um, Wendy and Danny drive away, but I just need one more scene where I know that they're definitely okay because they are traumatised. They're going down a mountain in a snowstorm and they might not definitely be okay and I just need to know that they're all right. You'd have wanted the hospital scene. You want that bloody dilly? I do, yeah. Because that's what Kubrick said. He was like, I feel like I need to give. It was actually quite a nice ending for Kubrick because he was like, I need to give some closure to this family and let everyone know they're all right. Apart from him giving him the ball. Yeah, that's weird. Well, no, it's just... It's it's the suggestion that this will continue the cycle of the cycle of horror. Okay, because uh, it it's Jack's ball. Um, I'm almost the opposite because I think he cut that scene. He cut the scene of a, the 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 UK version at the beginning because also he wanted more of the story to take place at the Overlook and not so much outside. I would have the whole film take place at the Overlook. You can have the journey there and the phone calls outside, but I cut those early scenes in in the, in the kitchen uh, because I just like. I like being trapped there, and mm-hmm. I think I think the film. I'm not going to say it would have been better. Why are we trying to change a Kubrick movie? Um, it's great as it is. Fine, I'm done. Great. great. And if uh, this was a, a complicated one, um, apologies if we did get anything wrong. Uh, but don't tweet us because we don't care. <laughs> Lovely. Do we do a quiz? Yeah. Why not? All right. Hotel quiz. Okay. Hotel quiz. So if I how this one's going to work is so I said to you, in what movie did Jack Nicholson run around with an axe? In a hotel, you give me the movie. Okay. Yeah, okay. So, shining. Yeah, one point no, to me. One point absolutely to me. not. Right. That was a test, right? In what movie does Debbie Moore cavort on a bed covered in mud? In mud? Money. Indecent uh, proposal. Correct. Got it. Oh, Vicky. <laughs> Vicky started strong. Uh, in which movie does Tony Soprano beat up Boyhood's mum in a hotel room? Oh, um, True Romance. Correct. Oh, oh. I thought Alex was going to get that because you weren't on that episode. So we've watched that more recently. Well played. Thank you. Damn it. <laughs> in what movie does Bill Murray struggle with a running machine a hotel, in a hotel? A lost in Translation. Oh, look, he wants this. He wants it. Um, in what movie does someone in a hotel in a bath sing to Prince? A Pretty Woman. Correct. Oh, we've yeah. done it on the show. <laughs> In what movie at a motel does Janet Lee take a shower? Psycho. In- Correct. <laughs> oh, oh, you need this to even it up. In what resort uh, in a movie does Paul Rudd tell a guest, you sound like you're from London. Heartbreak Hotel. Marshall. Correct. Oh, yes. <laughs> Heartbreak Hotel. I meant the Heartbreak Kid and that would have been wrong anyway. <laughs> Screw this stupid hotel based quiz. <laughs> you sound like you're from London. <laughs> Amazing, Vicky. Well played. Oh, my God. Uh... 
Is that the end? That's it. You won. Oh God. 4-2. A 4-2 victory. A 4-2 victory. Do you want the bonus one? See if Alex would have got it. Yeah. I don't know. In which country would you find the Grand Budapest Hotel? Budapest. France. Hungary. Hungary. That took longer than it should have. Lovely business. All right then. So before we talk about Thursday, let's look ahead to next week as King versus King continues through October here on ClashPod. Chris's choices. What's the clue? Duvet days. Duvet days. Love it. Duvet days is your clue. We're on Twitter at ClashPod if you want to have a guess and uh, will be revealed on Thursday's episode. Uh, before then, though, we are back on Thursday to talk about Doctor Sleep, the sequel to The Shining. In the meantime, please subscribe, rate and indeed review us if you have time. It would be great help. And do check in with us on Twitter and Instagram at ClashPod. Speak to you Thursday. This was a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.